Hi, I'm Dr. Allison Veit, and welcome back to Ask Freudina. In this first season, we're dissecting common situations that people enact and how to avoid them. In this episode, we're looking at the priest and sinner enactment. As always, for a more detailed theoretical explanation of this episode's theme, feel free to listen to episode four of Freudina's Shrinkfink, which should be right next to this episode in your podcast player. Hi, um, I have a quick question about this boy I've been talking to. Basically, um, I really like talking to him. He's a really sweet guy, very smart, very funny. But sometimes when we're talking, he becomes really self-conscious and insecure and will start um, being a little obnoxious or making some jokes that are, like, either inappropriate or just rude. And I can tell that he, like, isn't doing this because he really thinks it's funny or because he really means it. He just gets very inside of his own head. And I was wondering if there's a good way to tell him that, you know, he doesn't need to be insecure around me without, like, making him even more insecure by pointing it out. Um, I don't know. If you have any advice, I would really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Hi, caller. Um, I chose your call because it doesn't have any particularly salient or crazy or unusual features. But just because it's the kind of call that I get so often that I think it's really common and I want to talk it through, even though it really doesn't sound like a big deal. It seems to me that these are enactments, small enactments that are happening over and over, very often in gendered ways, but not so, not always uh, throughout um, our culture. And by the sound of this call, you're actually pretty young and it would be wonderful if you could see this pattern happening with yourself right now so that you can sort of Change it for the rest of your life if you so desire. So I'm going to try to talk it through with you. Uh, Today's episode, as you know, uh, was about um, one person being the person who does something wrong and the other person being the one who tells them that it's okay. I've used the model of a confessor and uh, the person who confesses because I think many people uh, think about priests and those that come for absolution. Um, but a more minor view of the same paradigm is, fe- is seen in your call. And I know that's a funny kind of thing to say about a guy and a girl who uh, seem to have a budding romance and why the heck am I uh, interfering here? What the heck has he done to uh, make you absolve him of sin? Doesn't sound like he's done anything at all. I'm bringing it up because it's really the same kind of paradigm, uh, the same kind of enactment. Um, this boy uh, is insecure, yes, and he's having a lot of trouble self-esteem, yes. And there's an interesting thing happening because rather than hiding it from you um, and becoming sort of full of himself, uh, he's narcissistic and full of himself in some other way. Uh, he's requesting your help, kind of ensuring your help by making himself pitiable in some way, and then treating you poorly in a way that I don't think you've quite understood. Um, You're going to be the rescuer here, 
where you're rescuing him from his own moral badness and you're going to bring him around to be good. And I guess I'm hoping you're hearing what I'm saying, that there's something in this that's very manipulative, that the more he says negative things about himself, he can continue to sort of be those negative things and not have to see that he himself has to change and do things better in order to become a better kind of human being. And in fact, he's gotten you so twisted inside that you're wondering what it else it is that you can do in order to change things so that he feels okay, as if there's something you can do to change things. When in fact, uh, it's been the pattern throughout history when one person, it's often the male, has some ego uh, problem, feels bad about himself, they get caught up with females who keep on trying over and over and over to make them feel good. Uh, This pattern doesn't work. I think you kind of sense what I'm saying, that there's not a darn thing that you can say to this guy that's going to make him feel okay. Can you even find the magic words? Because if you could, I think you would have said them. So the question to you, dear caller, is not why are you with this guy or interested in this guy, but in what ways are you getting satisfaction or joy out of potentially being the person who rescues this person from their inner state of misery? Or in what way are you becoming someone who gets some pleasure in hearing the confessionals of somebody who's talking about their deepest insecurities. There's some voyeuristic way in which something about this is making you feel good. So in the short term, you're wanting to hear all this because you have the unrealistic but very pleasant notion that if you think about it enough, you can help them. And I'm flagging that this is another version of narcissism. Uh, that both you and he have narcissism. And when I mean narcissism, I mean you have unrealistic expectations of what can be achieved. Uh, there's no magic words you're going to say that makes going to make him feel okay. Um, there's not like something you're going to say that both you and he are going to do something fantastic with your relationship that he's going to thank you so much. You'll jump into each other's arms and you'll live happily ever after. But rather there's a way in which The only thing to say to him is that you find him wonderful and lovely and you're interested in him, but that it's exhausting and tiring to have to assure him of this and that if he wants to be with you or is interested in you, uh, that's the kind of work he's going to have to do because you want to be with somebody who's whole and who's together. And in terms of your own self and your own life, it's time to examine your script and figure out the whys in which you want to be this person. What about it makes you feel safe or good or quiet, or desirable, or smart, something about it's important to you, and to work that through so you don't stay in this side of the paradigm. The other part, I'm sure y'all know what I'm going to say, is since people seem to play both parts in the script, you should probably look in your own life. Are there people in your own life, whether they're teachers, or friends, or parents, where you're playing his parts, where you say negative things about yourself, uh, so the other person's forced to say good things about you. Uh, one example of this in like teenage girls is well, there are certain girls who are quite thin who keep on saying, I'm fat, I'm fat, I'm fat, and it's the responsibility of their friend to say, no, you're not, no, you're not, no, you're not. But th- is there another way in which you keep on saying lousy things about yourself or 
looking like you have very low self-esteem and sort of forcing the other to say good things about you. I don't know whether it's true or not, but again, that would be you playing both roles of your own internalized scripts. And as happens so often, uh, the ways in which couples happen and relationships form is very often people have many of the same internalized scripts. And I would guess that you and this guy uh, certainly have at least this, this, this script, at least this script, if not others in common. Uh, good luck. Um, I answered your question quite seriously, even though you sound quite young, uh, because you also sound very interested in the way the mind works. And I'm hopeful, again, that this is going to help you out. Uh, if you have further questions, we really always love to hear from repeat listeners. Feel free to call back. Hi, Freudina. I'm a 22-year-old man from Seattle. I was hoping you can help me out with an issue I'm having. I started dating this girl back in November, and we kept it casual for a while. But when March hit and we had to figure out, like, the shelter-in-place thing, we decided to move in together. Even though it was kind of early for that sort of thing, we were getting along really well, and I figured since we were, combat since we were compatible, it was probably a good call rather than, you know, like living alone during this entire thing. In some ways, it's been really, really great. You know, she's she's super kind. Uh, she's a great roommate, you know, compassionate, and just really, really fun to be around overall. The problem is that, the problem is that, like, I simply, I'm not into her the same way anymore, you know. She keeps on asking me what's wrong because, for so many months, we were so good together, you know. Uh, it was going really, really well. And I I can't I can't figure it out because I was really, really into her. I, I mean, I thought about her all the time. Uh, she really is like, I find her so hot and she's so fun. She's super funny. And I, I just feel terrible because the last few months, I've, I've really gotten to know her. Uh, and as a person and she's really just great but for just some reason I'm just I'm just not into her into the same way anymore and, and I don't get it uh, you know we've we've had lots of really intimate experiences in the past couple months not only sexual but romantic and personal when we you know we both got either the flu or COVID or something obviously we sheltered in place during that time even more intensely, and and it was it was scary, but it obviously made us closer. And I I don't know, but it's yet I don't I still don't feel the same way. Honestly, I can't figure out whether it's time to say goodbye or even what happened. Basically, I'm like totally confused, and my sex drive is basically dead, which makes me feel really bad to begin with. I feel like a bad feel like a bad person. I feel like a bad person. I, uh, I want, I really like, I want to be into her, you know, and I know I was like, I definitely was into her. I'm not kidding myself, but for some reason I'm not. And I don't, I don't want to mess her up in, you know, in my own confusion and my own, you know, romantic confusion for lack of a better word. Um, I would really, really appreciate any help for Adina. Thank you very much. Now, this is a really interesting one. 
as the caller is actually unknowingly asking me, Freudina, to enact something with him. He calls up no longer into his own girlfriend and obviously feeling guilty and needing to break up with her. But instead of discussing enactments in his life with others, he's beginning to enact the role of the penitent with me as the confessor. Caller, a special shout out and thank you to you. As from this call, we can see the beginnings of how these things are created, uh, which is really helpful. You feel guilty. You clearly need to break up with her and not feel like the bad guy. So you're calling to have me let you off the hook. I hope that's clear to you. The question isn't really the way you frame it. What do I do? Um, You know, should I stay with her? Should I break up with her? How do I do it? This whole sturm und drang. The question is really, I'm going to break up with her. I feel really terrible about it. And get me off the hook emotionally because I feel really sick to my stomach. So, okay, kudos to you. You're a very decent person. And I'm glad after... Um, really sheltering in place with this woman, you feel a sense of responsibility uh, to make sure her feelings aren't hurt. Um, And you're trying to do it in a way that's as least injurious as possible. That's very important. Um, So in terms of the advice department, obviously you're just going to, in a real and rational and safe way, find the easiest exit here. Because uh, it's my belief, once you know you want to go, Uh, You should try to be honest and exit as quickly as you can with the least harm. If you're sure you want to leave a relationship, uh, no one wants to look back on it and realize their partner stayed with them for a long period of time, all along knowing that they wanted to go. So here you are. Honesty is the best policy, uh, but best to set up something so you have an actual exit plan and she doesn't get stuck during this period of time sheltering with a guy who she knows wants to leave. Uh, So that's the absolute uh, practical plan. In terms of the rest of it pertaining to today's episode with the confessor um, part of it, caller, I want you to really think about the way in which you are plagued by your own guilt or the way in which you are enacting with me this confessor penitent uh, enactment. Um, Something about you just can't handle uh, that aspect that life is full of causing others pain and you kind of need someone to say to you yeah you got to break up with her so figure that part of it out you don't want to be stuck um, confessing your ills or not able to take on the burdens of things that are very hurtful without the support of others. You want to be a person who feels certain in the kinds of moral decisions you make and able to do the tough stuff uh, with uh, gloves off with as much kindness and empathy as possible. And judging from the tone of your voice and the way that you framed it, you kind of get that you may really hurt this person. And I'm hoping that your sensitivity and your kindness uh, enables you to do that. And that in the future, when you have really tough stuff to deal with, that you'll know that life is often a series of difficult decisions hurting people you care about, and that um, it's often more painful uh, not to do it right away with kindness um, than to let things drag for a while. Um, But it's nice to share the planet with such a good guy. And I'm hoping both you and your soon-to-be ex-girlfriend are doing okay. Uh, Feel free to call back at any point if you like. 
And now it's time for Thoughts from the Couch with my friend, Dr. Michael Singer. Hello, Dr. Mike. Uh, this is Freudina. How are you? Hey, Freudina. I'm, I'm doing pretty well. It's great to hear your voice again. You know, and I, I, you know, I've been thinking this week after our previous talks, I've been thinking of the, the importance of what you do with us, other shrinks. You know, there is something about uh, this COVID situation that has really been depleting for, those, for everyone, of course, but I think particularly for those of us who are providers, those of us who give mental health care, who do psychotherapy, it's been very, very difficult. We're talking to all of our patients who were so upset about these things, and we are also very upset about it, but I have to say that you have a way of being so wonderfully real and uh, unsentimentally supportive and showing other therapists, myself included, and, and this is one of the reasons I'm so grateful to talk to you and for our friendship as well, you have a way of showing how to play even in these difficult times, even in these constrained times. And I, uh, and, you know, I, I you know, don't blush as I'm complimenting you, but <laughs> it, 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 it's an aspect of you that I've always seen, uh, a, a way of really helping other therapists and figuring out, helping us figure out how we can for ourselves maintain uh, good mental health, good boundaries particularly. And that is something that you do, I know, in your work with your patients. You are real with them, playful with them. And, uh, it, it, and I, 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 I'm specifically thinking of the notion of uh, improv and how do we improvise with our patients and you have been so wonderful at teaching me and teaching other therapists how to be real in that way that is mutually uplifting and mutually supportive i am so amazed by this incredible uh let's say um volley of supportive kind empathic compliments this might be the first time in 20 years. I, I, what the heck are you on, my friend? Have you been drinking something really good? Is there a new man in your life? I just don't get it. <laughs> you know, you know I, I, I was raised on iced coffee. It seemed to be a Long Island thing in the 50s. And so I've given in. And during COVID, I'm treating myself with iced coffee. And I'm realizing all of the things that I have to be grateful for. And to be able to speak as a close friend of Freudina is one of those things that I'm really grateful for. I just want oh, to know. Oh my gosh. I'm just gonna, so glad I have this on tape because every time I'm having a day where I'm not feeling great, I'm just going to go back to this and play it and replay it. In fact, I'm going to keep it. So one day when you're not feeling so good about me, I'm going to replay it and replay it. But what do you mean, <laughs> sir? I have fabulosity in all its manifestations. Uh, but thank you for that. Obviously, it's, it's, it's just a wonderfully uh, supportive comments and it's, 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 it's great to have people in, in, in your life that make you feel so darn good. Um, I do think that um, holding on to fun and a sense of play is essential uh, when you're having uh, work with people and, and helping them live their best lives, so to speak. It's a silly way to speak, but in a way, I think it's something that's deeply meaningful, just help, helping people to do the best they can with what they got and to rethink what they got. So maybe they have more than they thought or different than they thought. And uh, part of that, of course, is the idea of being able to play with something, to play with an idea, to have, play full in the way kids are. So they can take a, an empty soda can and then it becomes, I don't know, something to 
play football with or something to drink out of or something to make sandcastles out of, but ideas and words and, and, and um, the kinds of interpersonal things you and I talk about all the time are a source of play. Um, to me, actually, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of our colleagues that we've been in touch with um, over uh, COVID uh, and these periods of time, although it's a little bit better now in New York, this resurgence in, in other parts of the country, um, but we've seen terrible devastation. And I, I think one of the hardest parts for me was in all the groups that we're part of where we try to have um, peer support, uh, we've really heard about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases uh, confidentially with things um, uh, obscured. But uh, it's been a lot of, uh, you know, what I call vicari vicarious traumatization, uh, you know, the experience of uh, grief felt second and third hands. Mike, if it's okay with you, I just want to say one thing. Um, a colleague of ours, Richard Gartner, who's also a friend, uh, wrote a book um, called A Counter Trauma about three years ago, uh, where I wrote a chapter, uh, the chapter I called uh, Why I Don't Watch Scary Movies Anymore. And uh, it's interesting looking back on that chapter, which I haven't been able to reread. But in this book, uh, Richard Gartner basically took, I think, about 25 people who died with a lot of trauma and asked them to write a personal narrative about who they are and how they think they've been shaped by hearing about so much grief and so much trauma. And what I ended up writing about was why I don't watch scary movies anymore, meaning why it is that so many of the things in life that seem um, to be uh, kind of neutral or uh, playful way of dealing with horror didn't have that much appeal. And in following up that article, I guess if I were supposed to write another article again, I would talk, talk a lot more about what you and I mentioned in a previous episode, which is that I'm now picking up things that have to do with trauma or genocide or pandemics, uh, because the trauma, once again, has become more than what I absorbed before, and I'm needing to find ways to play with it. Uh, does that make sense to you, or am I, is there another, another one of these rambling things where you're being tolerant and pleasant? <laughs> it it, do, it does make sense it does make sense to me in the sense that we, we we have to control our exposure to violence and bad feelings in general right we have to be able to manage it better these days particularly i don't watch i don't watch horror movies anymore either i have to confess um i was never so big on them they always freaked me out a little bit but it, it's it's been important for me to be able to choose when I'm engaged and to really find ways of playing that are just good for me. And I, and I think, again, that's one of the things that you do really well. And I wanted to mention in that, uh, in that area of your sense of improv and your, and your bringing improv to a group of psycho, psychoanalysts uh, recently and helping us to sort of play because for adults, how do we, how do we play except by uh, 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 saying things off the top of our heads, saying you know, unashamedly, saying things to other people, uh, things that are funny, things that are connected, things that are unexpected. Um, and that, I, for me, it was something that was really calming and really fun and I laughed like crazy and it was so helpful in terms of feeling replenished. Oh, that's really great. Um, yeah, I guess uh, just, you know, to explain what you're saying. So I have a friend, Andy Cohn, who's at the Comedy uh, Network and um, 
I was thinking a lot about my own my life as, a, as an improv person and my life uh, in my other lines of work um, and the ways in which in improv you can have spontaneity and mutuality and a heck of a lot of fun when even talking about very serious things. And the way in which I felt that um, work in um, helping people with their problems or uncover uh, difficulties in, in past experience and flipping their script, that there was less of that um, during times of great grief. And I was particularly taken with how many of our colleagues uh, seemed to be grief struck and not able to play anymore in their own mind. They were just bogged down by so much trauma. Uh, and that was my thought, like, how do we get spontaneity back? I'm wondering what you think about um, how that went, uh, in what way it was freeing or not freeing, or uh, what was it like, what were the exercises like, and, and, and how does that help uh, us um, in terms of our work in helping people uh, do better with uh, difficult times? Mm. Well, for, for one thing, part of the exercises seem to be how could each of us individually disclose something that normally we wouldn't disclose, but doing it in a, in a welcoming environment of laughter, of supportive laughter. Mm -hmm. I remember, I remember, I said something that after I said it, I was shocked that I had said it because it seemed to be an admission. And I thought, oh no, will people, will people think less of me? Or what did I say? But at the time, it felt it felt so freeing to be able to just blurt it out. And so, how do you blurt out? what's on your mind that is there uh, that that also brings you closer to people in a very very playful environment all of the all of the exercises were were spun were, were were to generate spontaneous uh spent spontaneous either utterances or responses to a, an unexpected question that someone else asked but in a way that was related but also in a way that was specifically fun and I would say that most of most of the responses were greeted with a loving kind of laughter. And I think yeah, that kind and we of, that, also I guess we also I guess basically uh, enabled others to shame us, and it didn't ha happen, right? So in a way, uh, your worst fear in sharing something is that you're going to be shamed by the other, and that you just be agreed in the beginning. That's part of our contract. It's not going to happen. There'll be no shaming here today, sir. So, um, you know, I guess for myself, that's also freeing that part of the social contract is you have a space where it's going to work. I guess for me, I'm also thinking a lot about how it would be nice to do that alone with my own head, my own space to give myself a, sh a shame free zone where I can play with ideas and thoughts um, myself without judging myself and, and how much mental clarity and uh, freedom there then is to play with the kinds of things I might like to think or do or say. And that's a hard thing to do unless you practice. Well, I think you're so good at doing that with other people that I hope that you're able to give yourself that space too. Because Damn. one thing from knowing you, it's one thing that I know you do with your patients is that you give, you help them create this whole space of where they can do things and say things without shame. And certainly that that's happened between us too. When I said at that other time, I, I had a slip of the tongue and I said, girl, and then I, and then I said, woman, and you were able to point it out to me, but in such an accepting way that I didn't feel the same shame that I might otherwise have felt. And it was, it was, oh, it, was a re it was a relief. Yes. Also, I got to make my cooking and baking analogies and then realize, no, you're precise in cooking, too. So, uh, yeah, it's good to have friends that are really, really good at things and are really open to hearing all kinds of things and to be able to explore. So it's a certain kind of freedom. Um, thank you for being that person in my life. It's awesome. 
um, and for enabling these kinds of conversations. Um, next week, I think uh, people were interested in uh, hearing a little bit more about uh, what we talked about in terms of uh, uh, politicization, politicalization of, um, of the world and how things are moving between two poles and our thoughts on that, uh, which of course is uh, obviously what's happening here. Uh, so if you don't mind, it's a heads up for that's the topic. Uh, are you good to go with that? Sounds great. Okay, have a great week. Thanks, Corinna. Thanks, Dr. Mike. Hi, Freudina. I'm calling from Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I have sort of an ethical quandary. Um, I'm a gay man who's been in a monogamous relationship for nearly six years and being concerned about the coronavirus and its impact on people of color disproportionately. I want to donate blood, but I am not legally allowed to because the FDA says that men who had sex with men, even within a monogamous relationship within the past three months, are ineligible and that you have to abstain for three months. I'm unwilling to do that. Um, I guess my question is, what do you think about me going to a blood donation center and just lying? I know that I'm HIV negative. I know that I've been in a monogamous relationship for nearly six years. Um, and I know that I want to help uh, my fellow New Yorkers. Um, that's it. Thank you. Wow. This was a very tough call. Um, it really was. Uh, here we have a rule about blood donations, which uh, I actually find uh, morally reprehensible, um, but I know nothing about the medical decisions that went into it. It strikes me that during a time of stereotyping of all sorts and us looking into our own prejudices and biases, uh, the blood donation rules as far as I understand them, really utilize things that have little to do with science and quite a lot to do with uh, prejudices and bias. With that being said, uh, that's what I've understood from what I've read, and I'm certainly not a medical person, and I don't know for sure that there aren't legitimate reasons for this rule. Uh, but from what I've read, it doesn't seem to be based in medical fact. So here we have a caller who actually seems so invested in giving blood at a time when we so desperately need it uh, that he is pushing himself to the limit to try to do that. And he asks for permission, again, in a kind of enactment with me, uh, to violate the rules. So the first thing I guess I think of is how much anger there is, really justifiable anger in the caller who feels... Um, that he, more than most people in society, actually wants to be helpful and help save lives. And because of some bias against him, because of his sexual preference, is being stopped in that way. And real anger, and also I think a sense of hopelessness and helplessness and futility in that. Um, and his response to that, of course, is, um, you know, maybe I should lie. Um, I think that um, this call is some kind of request for collusion uh, with messing with blood donations uh, that the caller must sense in me 
and probably in many others, uh, uh, the shared sense that we don't really understand this medical ruling and that there's a good chance that it's based in prejudice. So he requests to uh, ask this question to Ferdina anonymously, and that's a request of me to be complicit and kind of allow for this in some sense. So we can see how this enactment is a kind of mix in a way. Uh, The guy feels justifiably, in my opinion, angry with the rule, but is going to act out and ask for validation from me in a time of medical uncertainty, which is obviously something I would never say yes to uh, because there are a thousand reasons uh, that this is a bad idea and a bad plan. And I'm not going to enumerate all the practical ones, but the moral ones are also very difficult here. Before you think I'm inflicting my own moral code on him, look at the fact that he called and his own moral quandaries that he wants to act out in anger and be justified for it. Uh, If you listen to his tone, that's a big part of this call as well. Uh, And again, no judgment because... When I say that he's angry, I don't mean that he's justifiably or unjustifiably angry. I mean, probably he is justifiably angry. And probably in that situation, I might feel that way as well. Um, But again, uh, calling and asking for someone to help him enact something or to confess what he's about to do and be let off the hook for it uh, is another kind of enactment. Uh, so caller, I would suggest to you that there are probably very good practical reasons not to give blood with this kind of thing going on. It'll lead to problems, as you probably realize, um, that we can't even foresee. So in a practical way, it's not going to be helpful. Uh, there'll be some problem in which this is discovered, or there are some other issues involved, or they may well be some medical issues that you and I are not aware of. I'm not sure. A much more effective way to deal with your justifiable anger is to try to politically uh, make some kind of movement to bring this thing to light. Uh, I think you're calling, you said, from uh, a part of the country which is actually very, very foremost in changing these kinds of laws. And my understanding from a bit of research is that they've changed a bit now and they're the kinds of laws that could change very quickly with the right political pressure applied. And you really seem like the guy to do it, effectively changing the um, American Red Cross ability to take blood from lots and lots more people at a time uh, that that desperately needs it. So in terms of heroics, I, I think you could be just the guy for it. Should there be the need for such heroics? No, probably not. I don't really know the issue that well. Um, But when there's wrongs going on, being the person who corrects the wrongs, uh, sometimes, um, maybe all the time, it takes an angry person to do it. Uh, But an angry person who socially and morally got their head on straight. And it sounds, caller, that maybe that's why you called. Not only to be thought of as potentially morally being let off the hook for donating blood, but maybe you really called to get the fire in your belly to try to change the societal norms around this. And if so, um, if that's the thing we're enacting, then I'm delighted to be enacting it with you. Uh, Go forth and do it and let me know how it turns out. Uh, Thanks so much.
I hope you've enjoyed the callers today. I chose a variety of callers that can show us the ways in which we're often implicitly asked to let someone else off the hook, rather than to leave people to grapple with their own sense of having violated some internal sense of morality. Uh, There was also one caller who called and asked about someone else's behavior. And I really felt that she, in terms of the professor, needed to look at the pattern which he was enacting uh, because it was not clear to her what was going on. Um, I think it's really important that when we hear about these kinds of enactments, um, that there are very often pulls to react to them in very specific ways, which I haven't yet addressed. So sometimes when something terrible happens to someone, we have an internal feeling to collude with them and to see the aggressor as a victim. Uh, Sometimes we see people who were caught up in terrible situations and really awful things happened to them, but they in fact were the criminal who instigated it and yet bad things happened to them. Um, oftentimes we forget to see that these people who did criminal activities and really off, acted awfully uh, were not victims, but that the things that happened to them were because of their own agency and violating ethical norms. Um, oftentimes um, therapists fall into this and sometimes judges or lawyers where they see the terrible toll uh, that has been enacted on the um, criminal who suffered greatly after his sins, and some part of them wants to relieve them of the sentence that's being carried out. Uh, Oftentimes it's warranted because the person's suffering more than makes sense, but oftentimes it's not. It's just the immediate sense um, of seeing someone not really being able to see his internal badness because it's just so awful, and watching someone else suffer, uh, empathic people, want to see them as a victim rather than the aggressor who caused all this by murdering someone or something else. Um, so there's this strong urge to rescue sometimes a person who is an aggressor, uh, which grows after what I call an unconscious collusion to deny the scope of the person's aggression and sadism um, in their ethics violation. This often happens with sexual predators who are released into the community. And people say, oh goodness, you know, he did in fact uh, act terribly sexually towards lots and lots of kids, but you're gonna deny him living in a school district forevermore? You know, how will that work? There'll be such limited spaces that he can live in. And yeah, we have uh, a lot of empathic people out there, which is great. But again, I see this as a kind of collusion where we see the aggressor as a kind of victim. But in fact, until we know that society is safe for him, uh, he is in fact someone who is potentially there to uh, harm kids uh, for a very long time until we have the science uh, to support that he's no longer dangerous. Um, So people often blind themselves to the harm that they're causing in order to do what they want to do. I'm pointing at this odd enactment because I think often pedophiles uh, are not rude, terrible, awful, unethical people, but rather very often kind and and lovely people who in this one particular way are sadistic and, and, and terrifying in that they convince themselves 
that they're not causing harm to kids and very often that they're helping kids. And it's because of the self-delusion uh, that they blind themselves to the awful, awful, awful consequences of their actions in order to do what they want to do with children. Uh, the same thing happens to those of us who are, are looking about and are empathic, kind people and see the, the sadistic acts of pedophiles. But now many years later, want to blind ourselves to the fact that recidivism is very high in order to not deny housing and other things to people who've paid their time in many ways. So it's really important to help reintegrate um, our aggression and their aggression rather than to externalize it onto disciplinary bodies that are dealing with them. You can easily err in being overly empathic or overly punitive. So with the sex offender example, it's very important to set up zones of safety to keep kids safe. Um, but after someone has, has served their time, it's also important not to be punitive for punitive sake and to keep uh, former pedophiles from living out their lives. If there are people who are currently in danger of, of, of acting out, we cannot allow them access to children in any way. Uh, but past that, once people have served their time, uh, being overly punitive and trying to hurt them for the rest of their lives uh, is not an ethical stance, even though it's the way we all may feel. And that would be a very... Uh, good example of the kinds of ways in which you can be either overly empathic or overly punitive. Um, I'll also point out that in, in when we see people who are you know, acting out in ways that are just awful, people have a rescue fantasy, which we'll talk about in other episodes. And this is the kind of enactment that happens um, here when people confess to their sins, uh, another kind of thing that plays itself out is when you're confessed to, many people have the belief or the, enact the enactment profile of feeling like you can rescue someone from doing bad things. And this is often because you have blind spots in precisely the areas that will cause the disaster. Um, so this sense of omnipotence, which sometimes people feel when they hear someone calling them up and feeling so terrible, oh, I can cure you, I can cure you, um, those feelings have to be tempered with the recognition that there has to be a collaborative process. So although this sounds very heady and difficult, I'll point out one of the simplest calls we had today was with a girl who has a crush on a boy who seems to have a crush on her. Her sense that she omnipotently can sort of cure him by saying the right magic words is precisely this kind of enactment where one feels that they can be heroic and rescue the other. We are all more mortal or human uh, than otherwise, in the words of Harry Stack Sullivan. And uh, this is one more attempt by me, Ferdina, to help you see enactment um, paradigms that are present in everyday life. This week was really about the uh, penitent and the confessor in many ways in which we confess terrible things to another and ask them implicitly to absolve us of our sins. And if you kind of look at yourself, and I always like to add, add this little bit, you know, how is this useful? If you look at yourself and the ways in which you do things that you don't feel good about, uh, what do you do? Do you sit with them yourself? Do you call a friend or a spouse or a parent to uh, talk them over with you, to make you feel better about yourself? And 
that's perfectly fine and good. But are you also doing the internal work to uh, rectify it yourself and to feel okay about yourself? Uh, Being overly punitive with yourself is simply not helpful. Self-flagellation just doesn't work. But having the right moral tone of not feeling okay with it and striving to do better, I guess that's the uh, absolute uh, (laughs) thing that we're all striving to do. Uh, So look for your enactments on both sides and uh, try to flip your scripts. I'm always here to help. You know how to reach me, 212-784-6820. Thanks for joining me this week. If you want some suggestions of things that might be impeding your life and ways to think differently about them, check out for Adina's Brain Hacks. These five quick and easy brain hacks will give you some insight into why you do the things you do so you can start approaching your life with more control and a touch less crazy. Grab them at www.freudina.com backslash hacks. If you are enjoying the conversations we are having here on Ask Freudina, let me know. Head over to iTunes and leave me a rating and review. The more love we get, the more people we reach. Thanks for your support, and I'll see you in the next episode.